Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I want to start off by apologizing for, I don't know who I probably inconvenienced this morning, but I got here really early and I parked under the drive through And so some of you may have uh, had a sanctification moment as you drove into the parking lot and wondered, who is it that parks in a drive through and leaves their car there? That would be me. And so... Uh, I'm really sorry about that, especially on a rainy day, I couldn't have picked a worse day to do that, so um, anyway, please forgive me. Um, later on, we can have a bashing of my car in the parking lot. So. Today, we're moving ahead in our study of the book of Acts, picking up at verse uh, 16 of chapter 17 and working through to the end of that chapter. Uh, from the outset, let me just say that uh, we have a fairly large task in front of us simply because the verses before us are absolutely packed with uh, so many good things, which means we'll have to be selective and content with only hitting the highlights, which is in some ways always the case. Hopefully some good things will be said. Uh, Sadly, some good things will also not be said or even mentioned. So with that as a word of introduction slash warning slash preemptive apology, uh, let me invite you to please pray with me. Father in heaven, please inhabit uh, this moment by your spirit, giving understanding and enlightenment um, where it is needed and as it is needed. As we think about these words, which that same spirit authored and preserved for us, please use these truths and this time to move us further down the path of becoming more like your Son, our Savior, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you were here uh, last week and not asleep, you may recall that uh, this part of Acts that we're looking at, uh, that that we're we're kind of still working through, is, uh, is a summarized, selective chronicle of Paul's second missionary journey, recounting for us the early stages of the gospel's expansion into the European continent, uh, which will, in time, that that will be the launch pad for missionary activity to the furthest corners of the earth. So important as strategic things are happening during this second missionary journey. Um, In the previous study, we saw Paul's encounters in two Macedonian cities, Thessalonica and Berea, where Paul met with both success in terms of responsiveness to the gospel as well as persecution from haters of the gospel. The haters drove him at first from Thessalonica to Berea, and then later on from Berea to Athens, which is about 200 miles away, uh, going by sea. At the end of the story then last week, we see that Paul is still in Athens. Uh, He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to get his message. They're back in Macedonia and to come and join him there in that city. And so Paul, being who he is, he can't just sit still, and so he starts looking around the place, and uh, he's moved, he is deeply moved by what he sees. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So here's Paul. He's, uh, he's out on a walking tour of Athens. And as he's walked around, he's become increasingly agitated by what he saw. Uh, a city that was uh, full of idols. Everywhere he looked, there were temples and statues and tributes to every conceivable god or demigod. Uh, some scholars estimate there were something like 30,000 in the city. And it upset him greatly. The text says his spirit was provoked within him. And as commentators tell us, it's the same vocabulary, the very same language that's used in the Old Testament to describe God's response to idolatry amongst his people, his own people, in the Old Testament. So in short, Paul is he's deeply disturbed by what he sees, and his strong feelings are born of an intense jealousy, right? A jealousy that anyone other than the one true God would be the object of such devotion. It's a terrible analogy in many ways, but watch two people arguing about, you know, who is the greatest ever at anything, basketball, guitar playing, yodeling, whatever. But uh, see how worked up people can get. See how worked up they can get when it is suggested that someone other than their personal hero is the greatest in some field. People often take that sort of thing as a personal offense, don't they? They simply can't believe that you would give honor to, the, to uh, anyone other than the one uh, to whom they think that that particular honor is due. And again, it's a terrible analogy, but that is the dynamic here, certainly. Right? That's how Paul feels. He is looking around, he's seeing all this evidence of devotion and honor and praise and worship for every conceivable sort of God, but nothing offered. Nothing offered to the one true God. He's upset about it, and well, he should be. But he's not just upset. Anger isn't the only thing Paul feels, because if that was all he felt, uh, he wouldn't have preached to them. He would have preached at them. He wouldn't have expended the effort that he did to reason with them or be patient with them. He wouldn't have looked around and found something he could compliment them on in his opening remarks at the Areopagus. We'll say something about that in a moment. Certainly Paul feels a kind of righteous anger and even jealousy about their misplaced devotions, but he also feels, he feels compassion and pity and sadness. And that pity, if you know your Bibles, was simply an echo of the Lord Jesus' own emotions on a number of places, but one occasion in particular I'm thinking of when he looks out over the masses of people in the city of Jerusalem, Matthew 9 tells us that when he did that he had compassion for them, for they were distressed and downcast. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Reflecting on some of the implications of these verses, one writer had this to say about Paul being so motivated by the glory of God. He writes, Jealousy for the glory of God is perhaps a greater motivation for mission than even the Great Commission itself. Compassion for the lost is a great thing. It should always motivate us. That is, being driven out of fear 
for what will happen to people if they fail to respond to God. But to be motivated by God's glory is to be motivated with your eyes fixed on God, not people. It is to be unable to stand the thought of anyone not recognizing the beauty and wonder and majesty of God. It is perhaps a greater, more mature, more enduring motivation, one that can only come from a person who has reflected uh, long and hard and has loved God deeply, one who has been captivated by the wonder and majesty of God. It is a motivation that is not merely the product of a moment or a hundred successful quiet times. Rather, it is the end result of having endured the forging fires of God's various providences, some of them severe, some of them beautiful. It is the fruit of countless wars and struggles with one's own heart, wrestling with your own demons and brokenness with sweat and tears and blood, and then having come out on the other side of all that, loving deeper and harder than ever. I believe it is that sort of motivation that drove Paul. And really we should pause here and ponder, I think, for a moment um, the rebuke that this passage brings to all of us. Paul walked around this magnificent city feeling both indignation and pity. And he could not help himself. He could not remain silent. And John Stott, looking at this passage, wonders where the disconnect is for us. He wonders how the church, in a culture no less idolatrous than Athens, can remain so mute. And he concludes that we do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel what Paul felt. And we don't feel what Paul felt because we do not see what Paul saw. Why is that? At any rate, Paul, seeing what he sees, things that are maddening, things that are beautiful, things that are heartbreaking, feeling what he feels about this wonderful God that has saved him, seeing and feeling those things, he is deeply jealous that, that um, glory be exclusively given to the one true God. He cannot contain himself. He must speak, and so he does, and he does it in a variety of places. He goes to the synagogue and the marketplace. He goes uh, amongst the philosophers, so he's going to religious places, places of business, places of education and learning, every sort of place, and talking uh, with, as the passage says, whoever happened to be there, whoever showed up. Was Paul one about doing this? He came across some philosophers from two of the main schools of thought in that day and in that city, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and for various reasons, they found Paul's message intriguing. And so they invite Paul to come and address them at the Areopagus, which literally means Mars Hill. And uh, this place apparently was sort of the, you know, the Madison Square Garden of Athens. It was the place to experience the latest and greatest thing to roll into town. And as the passage makes clear, the Athenians were all about the latest and greatest thing, which at the moment was Paul. So that's one reason for his invitation to speak. But another reason for their invitation, I think, was likely just for their own amusement. Um, we see this indicated by the word that they use to describe Paul. They call him a babbler, which is a word that was typically used to describe a religious charlatan, a, a pretender, a huckster. 
No doubt they thought of themselves as the real thinkers in town, and they saw Paul as something of an amateur, a religious boy among philosophical men. But there may have been another motive too. As one writer has pointed out, the Areopagus was not just a place, it was a council. Uh, It was a gathering point for the city's greatest opinion leaders and philosophers. Just like the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, uh, they didn't necessarily have governing authority, but they were a controlling voice in terms of religion and culture in the city. In other words, they were sort of the gatekeepers. They were the thought police, uh, deciding which voices were allowed to be heard in the public square and which voices were not. And it's interesting to see, I think, in a situation not all that different from our own, how a society that had a place you know, for such a huge variety of beliefs and practices that was seemingly willing to tolerate almost any idea. Uh, nevertheless, that same society was capable of being extremely intolerant and illiberal when they wanted to be. Does that sound familiar? If it does, welcome to Athens. At any rate, Paul is invited to speak to this fairly prestigious group, and of course he accepts the offer. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul makes his opening comments to the Athenian intellectual elites and he starts off with what I believe here is a genuine attempt at being complimentary. He's trying to find, he's looking around and he's trying to find something positive, some good thing, some sliver of light that he can latch onto in a situation that had tons of darkness attached to it. And so in his opening words he notes an obvious fact. The Athenians are a very religious people. The evidence in the form of idols and temples is all around it. There are people who, for the most part, do not believe that they are alone in the universe. Most of them clearly believe that there's something beyond this world, something bigger than themselves. All of which brings to mind something Paul wrote in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Right? So the universe is God's billboard, is what Paul is saying. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Athenians are an illustration of the truth of Romans 1 in at least two ways. Firstly, they illustrate the truth that God really has left an undeniable mark on the universe. I mean, his, his fingerprints are all over this thing. It's so undeniable that Paul says no one, I mean, no one on the day of judgment will be able to say 
Hey, I didn't even know there was a God. No one's going to be able to say that. That ship is not going to sail on Judgment Day. So to their credit, the Athenians have picked up imperfectly, but they've picked up on the undeniable reality of God at the same time while they've picked up on the fact of God. They have nevertheless not honored him as the God he is. Which means, among other things, that they have not honored him for who he has revealed himself to be. But instead, they've worshipped him according to their own thoughts and imaginations. And then in keeping with that, they've shaped idols that are a reflection. Not of God as he truly is, but of God as they want him to be. So Paul saw things to praise and things to criticize in the Athenian culture. He saw both. Um, and as such, he could have started off, he could have started off right out of the blocks with this scathing critique of their idolatry. He could have laid, laid, that, laid into them from the word go, but he didn't. Instead, he looked around and he found something he could latch on to, a point of contact from which he could identify some common ground. Regarding this approach that Paul takes, one writer had this to say, the Paul of Romans 1, which I just read to you, the Paul of Romans 1 who speaks of the sad state of society is still able to love and connect with that society when he encounters it in Athens. Sometimes we Christians are so angry, we are so angry at the state of society that all that comes through is our anger. The only message that gets out is our anger. And not the love that we are to have for our neighbor, regardless of how misguided he or she may be. And some Christians seeing this, seeing their brothers and sisters spouting all this anger, will overcorrect and try to represent the faith differently, going to the other end of the spectrum, almost pretending as if there is nothing for God to be angry about, as long as the religious search is sincerely motivated. But that's wrong too. And actually Paul avoids both of these extremes. Paul knows how to confront, but he does so uh, honestly and graciously, and both message and tone then. Message and tone are important in sharing the gospel. The megaphone of the one can drown out the message of the other if they're not both them. So Paul begins his address to the Athenians with a charitable observation about their religiousness. At the same time, his desire to be charitable does not overrule his desire to be lovingly truthful. And so in addition to using their general religiousness as a launching pad for his address, he seizes upon one particular reality to move from his opening statement uh, to the main body of his speech. And the reality he latches onto is this. The fact that in addition to all of these specific uh, named idols, as one writer puts it, um, the, he latches onto the, uh, that, he, he moves past the named idols and he picks out this one idol that was sort of the catch-all, uh, the backup, or the safety idol, as one writer puts it, uh, dedicated to the unknown God. So they've got this idol there just in case you know, there's some God out there that they've somehow missed or neglected and they erected an idol to make sure their bases, all their bases were covered. Now, on one level, it might seem like a great idea. Uh, an indicator of, you know, a certain amount of humility goes with that. 
And so, uh, you know, maybe that's a smart way to go. I remember a tombstone I came across once in a cemetery that had a verse in the corner. It had a verse from the Bible. In another corner, it had a verse from the Quran. And then it had something from uh, Hindu sacred scriptures and then three or four other things. And, you know, whoever was in that grave, uh, he or she died, no doubt, thinking that they had covered every eventuality. Uh, just in case. That's what was going on in Athens, covering their bases with this unknown idol. And on the surface, again, it might seem like a good idea, a good thing to do. But here's the thing. It's only a good move if your assumptions about this unknown God are correct. But what if they aren't? What if this unknown God turned out to be a God that didn't want or even like people attempting to make some representation of him. What if this unknown God was not flattered by such a thing, but was actually offended by such a thing? All of a sudden, what seems like a good idea is potentially a very bad idea. So Paul seizes upon this reality that they were absolutely right. Uh, you know, from one perspective, they were right that there really was a God out there that they did in some way acknowledge and yet did not know. He seizes on that and says, in essence, look, I'm here to tell you about that God. And with that, he launches into this address, which surely is it's only summarized here, right? This is not the entire speech uh, of Paul. It's a summary. But from what we can see here, there's at least four main points or movements in what Paul says. The first one is found in verses 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. All right, so Paul's first point is not terribly complicated, but it strikes at the heart of the Athenian religious situation. Because here's this city that is awash with temples and idols and statues and objects of devotion, and Paul's opening point is to say, in essence, um, you guys have gotten this thing backwards. This is upside down. Your starting point is completely wrong. Why would Paul say such a thing? Because you see, the God that was implied by the Athenian situation, and you see it in his words, but the God that was implied was a needy God. He was a God who was lacking. He was a God who depended on people to supply him with certain things to make up for some sort of deficiency. And a God that needs people to supply his need is a God that can be managed. And who of us doesn't want that in our sin? A manageable God. A push-button God. Paul's opening point then in the face of that sort of thinking is to turn the Athenian view on its head. Paul wanted to understand that the God who is, is the creator. And a God who made the world and everything in it, that kind of God isn't lacking. He isn't lacking for anything. And he never will be. He isn't dependent on his creation to supply anything. Quite the opposite is true. His creation is completely dependent upon him. And at, on this point... Uh, John Piper, I think, is, is characteristically brilliant. He says, this news that God is not served, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything, that news is simultaneously the worst news and the best news. 
If what Paul is saying is true, then this is bad news for self-sufficient people who think they can negotiate with God on the basis of something they think they have to offer God, including their own righteousness. People like that, says Piper, are deluding themselves, and so this message of God's complete self-sufficiency is for them It's terrible news. On the other hand, if you are weak and helpless and sinful and know that any good that you do, you need God's help to do, then this comes as the best news in the world because a self-sufficient God loves to serve. He's not looking for anything from you. He loves to serve. His message to the world, the Christian gospel is not a help-wanted sign, It is a help available sign. For those who feel morally desperate and hopeless before a holy, infinitely righteous God, this is good news. And here's the thing. He says, maybe a God who doesn't need me, but loves me, doesn't need me, but he loves me, would be willing to be for me what I need. And isn't this exactly the point that is confirmed by the Lord Jesus himself? Isn't this precisely what we see in Mark 10, 45, which reads, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the same point. God is not served and Jesus is not served as though they needed anything. Jesus came not because he needed us, but because we needed him. So you see what Paul is doing here in this first point? He's saying God doesn't need you. And he's saying that because the gospel he preaches says clearly you need God. And so what Paul's doing in his opening remarks, he's laying the groundwork for them to hear the gospel. He's preparing the soil. For there he goes on to this next point. He says, he, uh, and he, this creator God, made from, uh, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So building on his point that God is the creator of all that there is and thus everything depends on him, building on that, Paul then draws out one of the specific implications of what he's saying, namely that this creator God started with one man and from one man that one common source brought forth every nation of mankind and determined not only that they would be, but also determined where and when they would be. Now why does this matter? Why is is Paul making this point to the Athenians? He's doing it, I believe, because the Athenians, as scholars tell us, have a very different view about themselves. They saw themselves as belonging to a distinctive race, even a superior race, that was not connected to the other people whom they regarded as barbarians. And so over against that kind of thinking, Paul asserts the unity of the human race in terms of its origin. And so... And doing that, he's taking aim at the Athenians' uh, cultural pride and saying to them, in essence, you're not all that. You think you're different than everyone else, but really, you're one of us. You're like the rest of us in the same place as the rest of us. You're in the same predicament as the rest of us. Paul then moves a step further, and he made from one man every nation of mankind. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. 
So after talking about God as the creator upon whom all things depend, and then sharpening that point to talk about God as the source of all the nations, Paul then talks about the purpose for which people, all people, including the Athenians, were created, namely that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. There's a lot going on in these verses just read to you, but basically what Paul is saying is this. Uh, God creates us, created us not for ourselves, but for himself. He created us that we might pursue him. And the, the reality is, God isn't far away. He actually isn't, he isn't hard to find. That's not the problem. The problem is that in our sinfulness, in our fallenness, we aren't really looking for him. We don't really want to find him, at least not as he truly is. And this fact of our being created to seek God is so fundamental to who we are as people. Paul can even go to some of their own poets and find evidence for this in their writings. And he quotes their own poets, these pagan poets. Now be sure that these these poets are writing and the, the God they are writing to and thinking about is Zeus. and Not the one true living God, but then that's the point, isn't it? We saw earlier from Romans this twofold reality that on the one hand, people know that God is there, and yet in their sin, they suppress that knowledge. And instead of pursuing the true God, they pursue what? They pursue substitutes. They pursue idols. Which leads to Paul's fourth move. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know, on the surface, the multitudes of idols throughout the city of Athens would lead one to believe at first glance that they were truly seeking after God. But actually, the opposite is true. They were seeking after everything but God. Man-made religion ultimately is never about finding God. It is always about keeping God at arm's length. And their idolatry was proof of that. And even in that, they weren't even paying attention to their own poets and their own philosophers. Who, speaking better than they knew, declared, we are God's offspring. Which we are, but just not the way they meant it. But if they'd even paid attention to that, to their own poets and philosophers, they should have known better than to think that worshiping by means of impersonal, lifeless objects was, you know, that's not an appropriate response to a God who you claim that that you've come from, that you're his offspring. So even their own distorted understandings should have steered them from that. That's what Paul's saying. And then in the face of this reality, Paul goes on to say that for a time... The ignorance of men and women in this regard has been overlooked. Overlooked not in the sense that God didn't notice it, nor that he regarded it as excusable, but that in his forbearing mercy, he did not and he has not right away visited upon it the judgment it deserved. As one writer puts it. So God's patience... uh, for a time in overlooking the ignorance of men and women ought not be read as implying that they had a valid excuse for not rightly acknowledging. It, this patient space that we're in ought not be read 
as an implication that the judgment's not coming. And so Paul says, all people need to repent of their rejection of God and their idolatrous substitution of other things. For, because, why? Because there is a day coming, he says. There is a fixed day when God will judge the world in these matters. And not only has God appointed a day, he's appointed a judge, and he's given you criteria by which you might recognize that judge. The same criteria we saw last week. The judge will be the one that rises from the dead. That's how you recognize it. And with this last remark, Paul, deftly sizing up his audience, I think, uses this reference to the resurrection to flush out, to flush out the real truth seekers from the mockers, the self-satisfied mockers. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Tamaris and others with them. You know, Paul arrives in this city. Um, he walks around and he sees that it's a city full of people that, you know, on one level are very religious, but then that's the problem. And accordingly, they're convinced because of that that they're basically right with God. And they've got all their bases covered, even their ignorance base, with this idol. But the problem is, they don't have their bases covered. And Paul knows it. And so he looks around and he latches on to a point of contact from within their culture. He uses their own poets and their own writers to confront them with the fact that their gestures toward God are not even consistent with their own worldview, much less God's. And he loves them enough, and he loves God enough, to then tell them that their ignorance of this unknown God is not only profound, but it is culpable. It is actionable. And there is a day coming when the God that they thought they could appease with a two-bit statue who is not at all what they assumed him to be, that God is going to come and there's going to be a judgment and they will be without excuse. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that in your wisdom you have preserved for us these particular scriptures and that through them we have a glimpse into how your servant Paul was used by you in a place like Athens. Father, as we think about our own city of Baton Rouge, which like Athens is also a city full of idols, we, would, you, would you please come and move us, move within us by your spirit that we might respond in ways similar to that of our brother Paul. Would you please give us a growing and deep knowledge and love of you, a love that would make us jealous for your glory and honor? Would you at the same time give us a great love and compassion for those who do not know you? And by both of these loves, move us to speak the gospel into the lives of those around us. Would you help us to see as Paul saw, to appreciate what is beautiful and good, but to see what is blasphemous and broken as well, and to know the difference between those things. 
Would you help us to have the courage that Paul demonstrated to speak your truth in the presence of our educated and cultured despisers and to want their reconciliation with you more than we want their approval? Would you please open our eyes to see the numerous points of contact in our own culture, places where your common grace breaks through and that we can bring into the service of our own ministry to others, much as Paul did. And would you move us to give people not a truncated, trivialized gospel that offers people uh, baubles and trinkets and trivia, but one that is sweeping and expansive, one that shows how the forgiveness and redemption that Christ achieved and offers to all who will embrace it, how that makes sense of this life and this world in all of its mess and confusion and hardship and struggle and suffering. Help us to understand our salvation profoundly that we might communicate it clearly and simply. We thank you for your patience, for your long-suffering, for the opportunity that your delayed judgment provides. Please help us to make the most of that particular opportunity. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now take up our collection for those that want to support the ongoing work of this church and a number of ministries that we support together as a church. <clears throat>